What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Mental Corner Podcast, the show where I bring on guests from all different backgrounds to talk all the things mental health. I'm your host, Harry Pavan, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Jay Schiffman. Jay is a speaker, storyteller, and the host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He has dedicated his life to making a difference in the mental health field as well as the substance misuse and recovery field. Now currently in long-term recovery of his own, Jay encourages difficult conversations and honest education for those going through similar struggles. Jay was such a blast to talk to, and I really want to thank him again for coming on and having this discussion with me. Now before we get into the episode today, guys, you know the drill. If you're listening, please like, comment, share, subscribe, give five stars if you're on that podcast platform, share with someone who might want to hear this episode. It's a really great one, and I can't wait for you to listen. I'll talk to y'all very soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace. good to go jay what's going on man thanks so much for coming on i'm i'm doing all right man thanks so much for having me excited to to chat always always happy to talk about the issues of mental health substance misuse and recovery and drug use and policy that that's what gets me out of bed every morning i love it man let's get right into that so before we get too deep into anything i wanted to get to know you a little bit better so where does your whole story this is a super broad question but like where does your whole story start well, uh, in the literal sense, the answer to that question is in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1986. I was born uh, in Cincinnati, born and raised, the oldest of four boys. And But uh, the, I think the more appropriate answer, uh, it, that I, the place I usually start it, is when I was diagnosed with ADHD as a preteen in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So when you... When you were diagnosed with ADHD in the in the '90s, was it really something that was talked about that early on? Because you know, mental health is still you know kind of a new topic in main society. So when you were first diagnosed, what was kind of like the reception from you, your friends, and your family? Yeah, yes and no. Um, so mental health, broadly, you're right, man. I mean, we're still fighting that battle, right? And and, and sure, things have gotten better, but uh, it's it's it sort of. Um, it, as great as we've made progress in some areas, we're exactly in the same spot in others. That being said, this was the time of the great ADHD awakening. And these are stats I like to drop a lot. When I was born in the mid 80s, the the number of young people in the United States treated for ADHD was was just south of 400,000. To put that in perspective, by the time I was diagnosed in the late 90s, just a decade later, that number had exploded to over 2 million. Wow. And uh, right, wow is a good way to put it. Uh, and and just put that in even more perspective. I, I gave that uh, that those figures once on stage, and a woman came up to me afterward and said, "Well, thank God we're not doing that anymore." And I said, "Lady, I hate to be the the bearer of bad news here, but that number is now four and a half million, uh, over over two times as bad." So um, this is a diagnosis that exploded in the late '90s, and with it, of course. Uh, came the explosion of of different medications to treat this. And, and that's really the, the, the focus of my story. Uh, the explosion obviously isn't really important. And, and to put some more facts around this, uh, this was uh, something that's been studied a lot more in sort of, I'm 35, so our generation has been the focus of this. But uh, we now know that over 50% 
of those people, young people who are treated for ADHD, ADD, anything under this umbrella, uh, will go on to struggle at some point with substance misuse. And now that can be as small as binge drinking. I don't want to say small, that's really the wrong word, but it's sort of common as binge drinking all the way up to my story, uh, the, the very uncommon full-blown medical addiction. So uh, this is something we're seeing a lot of in it, and it's a sort of a, a topic of study that's now getting a lot of focus. And we're going to hear a lot more about this in the next, I would say, decade. Yeah, for sure. So <clears throat> in your experience, like for your substance misuse, like where did that, where did that start? Like how did, how did you get into that? Yeah. So for me, it started with that diagnosis. So uh, sort of to, to, to help understand a little bit more, I was diagnosed again as a preteen. Um, and now we all remember uh, what else is going on in our bodies at this time, puberty, right? And mm. so puberty, we is sort of, we remember it as the voice changing, you know, all that kind of stuff. But what's also going on is rapid brain development. And if you take a young person who does struggle with some mental health stuff, I've had depression, and anxiety my whole life. Uh, I have OCD. These are things I generally can manage. But when you take that, you then add it to the point where we're all going through puberty and where massive changes are happening in the body. And on top of that, you put on loads of chemicals. I mean, you know, for 11 year old, I was on a lot of pills. And, uh, you know, for more context there, of course, these prescription drugs are not the same as, I don't know, going and shooting up in the bathroom. But at the same time, chemically, our brains really don't differentiate between the two. You know, it's not like our brain knows, oh, heroin is bad and Ritalin is good. It's that, 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 that's a false dichotomy that does not exist. And so you kind of create this perfect storm and Unfortunately for me, instead of seeing this perfect storm for what it was, my therapist gave it a new name and he, he called it bipolar disorder. Now, I didn't have bipolar disorder. And unfortunately, as we know, when you give someone medication for something they don't have, bad things are going to happen. Uh, for me, what that did was sort of light a fire under all these pre-existing conditions. So my depression and and uh, got worse and it, and it sort of, uh, in my body's desire to heal itself, I developed mania. Uh, and, and my OCD tendencies just skyrocketed. Um, and so what is sort of perverse about that is then my therapist saw these things and went, oh, God, my, my diagnosis fit him perfectly, not realizing that he had sort of created this problem. Um, and, and, and to answer your question directly, though, by my late teens, I was on medication for my ADHD as well as my you know bipolar disorder. And I'm using quotation marks for anyone just listening. Uh, and, and those I quickly developed issues of misuse and eventually addiction to. Man, that uh, when you, when you said that you were misdiagnosed, that actually happened to me as well. Like when I went into therapy and I went to the doctors, I was looking for answers. They they originally um, you know labeled me as dealing or living with psychosis, which hmm. was not That's serious. Was yeah, it's serious. It's not what I was dealing with. So I got put on medication that was for people experiencing psychosis, and the reaction my body had, like it. I've never felt anything like that. And I hope I never feel anything like that again. It was just, it felt, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before. It felt like my brain flatlined. It mm -hmm. was just, I don't think my body knew how to react to it. 
Yeah. Uh, so first off, I'm really sorry you to go through that. That is awful. Uh, for those listening who are like, wow, what a coincidence. No, this is very common, unfortunately. And I think the third and most important point there is uh, this is an example I always give. And I'm glad we're kind of getting to this early. My aunt is is recently in remission from cancer. Thank God. Knock on wood, all that kind of stuff. Right now for her and her treatment, every step of the way, every surgery or every decision not to get surgery, every medication, every procedure, she got third, fourth, and fifth uh, recommendations. She got other opinions. And that's very common with physical issues. Unless it's an emergency, then they do what they have to do. But when you're when you're talking about these big diagnoses like cancer, we get other opinions. That's just common practice. And yet, when it comes to mental health diagnoses, uh, the last figure I saw, and this is changing rapidly, was that 88% of people take their first diagnosis face value. And I can't even imagine if that was the same with physical health. I mean, that would be something that would be, that would be on the front page of every single newspaper, right? We would have mm. misdiagnoses of cancer literally 100 to 1,000 times a day. And yet, that's what's happening with our mental health. And so one of the things I always tell people when I speak, when I'm interviewed, is it is okay. And not only is it okay, but it's preferred. If you get a diagnosis like this, say thank you. That's a very serious diagnosis. I'm going to go get a second opinion. And if they concur, I'll be back and we'll, we'll figure this out. Do not take them for face value don't be afraid to hurt their feelings go get another uh, another opinion because this as you're hearing from the two of us will change your life yeah and you nailed it like my like to use an example of physical uh reference or references or you know p- getting opinions my my buddy he like he needed hip surgery and the one doctor's like you absolutely need it you need hip surgery and he was like, okay, maybe I'm going to get it. And he scheduled it in. And then he went to get a second opinion. And they were like, you absolutely do not need hip surgery. Cancel it right now. So like going back to when I was diagnosed with stuff, like I, I wish I had gotten that second opinion. I took because, you know, you go to a therapist, you go to a doctor, you put them on such a pedestal that like, yeah. oh, they know everything. Like they're, they're right. qualified for this. So I being an unqualified person who's just dealing with it, I should listen to this one person. Like people don't make mistakes. Right. Yeah, 100%. And and it's added to that is this really broken medical system that we exist in, how difficult it is for people to even find a therapist or, or a doctor in the first place. And this fear that, okay, well, maybe I don't, I don't want to wait another three months. I don't, I, and I get that. I 100% get that. And there's no good answer here other than continuing to push our leaders to create a better health system. Unfortunately, this is the one we're living in. And so in the meantime, we all have to be advocates for our, our own health. And that means getting other opinions. That means doing all the research in addition to hearing out the doctors, right? We're in this moment right now where people are sort of rightfully so bashing anyone who claims they've done the research about, you know, a lot of these big issues we're living with. And I get that, right? Because we don't want, you know, the we don't want a Dr. Fauci put on the same platform as Joe from accounting, who spent some time mm-hmm. on a Facebook rabbit hole. I get that. At the same time, if you are facing a major decision of your own health, you to your point, which I appreciate you cannot put the doctor on such a high pedestal that you are afraid to challenge them at all because that is how these stories happen we have to be our own advocates we have to be sitting there you know yes the doctor is the expert but you're the expert about you and if something doesn't feel right it probably means it's not yeah for sure man it's interesting that um 
and you hear this all the time it's we the brain is such an important like part of our everyday life and yet we neglect it so heavily yeah yeah it's it's strange that there's not more articles about what you're talking about or there's no more conversation about you know how people take it face value and there's not more advocacy around do your own research listen to them but also get both well so you know it's it's interesting i um, I, I understand why people are scared to speak out. You know, I technically in the medical system still have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder on my record. If, you know, if I go to a doctor, it's one of the first things they see is that I've been diagnosed with this and I have to tell them this story, uh, you know, the short version, obviously. And I also have to tell them that the truth now, which is that I do not take prescription pills. I, I'm in recovery. I'm not sober. Uh, but at the same time, I am not willing to take pills after what happened to me. And, and we can get back to my story in a minute. But that leads to, again, going back to what I was saying, for a forced situation where I have to be my advocate a lot. Really great example. I just had LASIK surgery last week, completely elective. And I'm, I'm sitting in the chair about to go back and the nurse walks over and hands me a, a little vial with a with a uh, Xanax in it. And I had told them four or five, six times at this point, I'm in recovery, I, I don't take pills. She hands it to me and I said, I, I don't I don't do this. And she went, Oh, really, I, I didn't see that in your file. And it was like, lady, I, I've told literally every person in this office, the, 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 the person on the phones in the front knows that I'm in recovery. I don't take this and and there's this uh, sort of unfortunate situation that we live in where, you know, we see it on the commercials, we put the patient first. That's a crock of BS that anybody who's ever encountered a doctor knows from the minute they walk into that office, you are the least important person in this equation. But it forces us to be the advocate and you have to speak up. Yeah, for sure. It And like you nailed it in the head where like sometimes it's terrifying to speak up, even not just like take get out of the medical world for a second, just in everyday life. Like when you're experiencing an off day and you're like having, you know, maybe a, a low point in your day and you don't want to go outside, you don't want to do anything. It's impossible. Well, it seems impossible to be like reaching out to friends that you made plans with or teachers or anything and being like, hey, listen, like I'm having a really shitty day. Like yeah. just outside in the everyday world, it's terrifying to be your own advocate. Yep. It is. And I think that that's why it's so important that people like you and I do what we do to keep raising awareness and helping educate people on how they can be better uh, resources for everybody else and for yeah, themselves. Man. For sure. For sure. So I wanted to get back to your story for a second, because you mentioned something just now. Uh, you were in rehab, but you weren't sober. What did what did you mean by that? Yeah, so the, the, the really quickly to finish my story, uh, in in by by my early twenties, I am completely met, uh, physically and mentally dependent on multiple of my medications, and, and I say that to be very clear. We toss the word addiction around a lot, and in fact, it's a very small percentage of people who struggle with misuse that are full blown medical addiction. I had it. Uh, it is by some measures as small as 4% of people who use substances. It's a very small number, but we conflate all misuse as addiction, and that could not be further from the case. So mm -hmm. I'm struggling with full-blown addiction, and I'm not getting better. And so in the summer of 2009, I did something very stupid, and I attempted to take my own life two, uh, two days in a row um, in, in the span of, of just over 24 hours. The second day, I accomplished in sending myself into overdose. 
And uh, I, I spent the next um, six months uh, first in a lockdown unit and then three months, or it, was, it was six weeks in a, in a lockdown, excuse me, three weeks in a lockdown unit, three months in a long-term care facility, a uh, total of just over six months. And um, it was there that I started to get to know people who had bipolar disorder and people who were struggling with, with addiction. And I said, wait a minute, that one, that doesn't look like me, but this one, that one I recognize. And so uh, I wish I could say that the, the facility was supportive. They were not. Um, I checked myself out, went through what's called step-down detox, which is the opposite of cold turkey um, in the much safer version of cold turkey. And uh, in spring of 2010, uh, I had no, nothing in my system for the first time in, in over a decade. So that's when I entered recovery. But I you know, as you just heard from my story, I never had a, an issue with alcohol. And I say, thank God and knock on wood, because I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, where whiskey flows like water. Um, so I'm very thankful uh, that I can still have a drink safely. I'm a big proponent of cannabis. I, I, I've got um, uh, my medical card here in Pennsylvania. Uh, and so these are things that I slowly incorporated back into my lifestyle. Now, this is really important, a very important distinction to make. As I said before, I'm not sober. I am in recovery. Clearly, I'm standing here talking to you. I could show you pictures of me over a decade ago and you'd be like, wow, I'm surprised that's the same person. Uh, I am not actively suicidal. You hear all this, you go, okay, clearly that guy is in recovery or in a better place than he was a decade ago. However, we as a society have allowed the, the term recovery to basically be synonymous with sober and there is a, a a growing movement of which i consider myself a part of uh to, to redefine that to mean just what it means you are in a better place than you were you are healthier you are in recovery from your period of struggle uh but that can mean using more safely i mean there are a lot of people i know who used to struggle with certain substances they still use them they're just being safe about it it's not having the impact on their life to me, that's in recovery. Uh, it, it is, I, I understand for people who are sober, I have many friends, I was at a sober wedding over, over the weekend and, and I love them for who they are. The people that I struggle with are the ones who say to me, oh, you're not in recovery because you're not sober. And I tell them, look, man, I know where you've been. I've been there too, um, you know, but if you're telling me that you and I are not the same because I am safely able to have a drink i just don't know what the hell you're talking about so uh this is a a a growing discussion it's been going on for over a decade now but i think it's finally we have broken into uh sort of the common um uh, community where people are hearing both sides of this and you have some incredible uh, uh, people advocates on the national level who are leading this charge uh, some of whom are sober and are just not willing to let the, the community be defined so so um smallly anymore so uh that uh, is is where i'm coming from i think i think using that as like the 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 definition of recovery is a lot less intimidating for people who are going into recovery as well because the whole idea of recovery now is that you have to go cold to, well you have to ease into yes. a cold turkey situation and i think some people just aren't ready like they, they've held on to this substance for so long as like a comfort or an escape that like the idea of just going cold turkey is terrifying so i i love i love that substance misuse and then recovery terms because it just makes things less scary for people who are going through it 
hundred percent. And and I think one of the greatest examples is a guy that I'm a big fan of, a big admirer of. Uh, I actually just had him on my podcast. The episode will drop next week, but his name is David Poses, incredible author. He is a, a former, uh, a longtime heroin user. He is on um, uh, buprenorphine, which is a, one of the, the, the recovery uh, drugs, and he'll be on it for a long time. He, he's very open about this. And the, the, there are people in, in, again, this is, we're talking about a very sort of extreme wing of the, of the recovery community who would say that he's not in recovery because he's on this, this medication. And here is a guy who, again, was an active user, was, was in bad health. He now is a happy family man with a life and he's a successful author. How are you able to look at that and say, oh, no, but he's not in recovery? That's ridiculous. He's clearly in recovery, but he's using a medication that some people consider to be trading out one drug for another, which is a bunch of BS. So uh, I, I agree with you. It's much more welcoming. There's less dogma, uh, dogmatic views. You don't have to embrace religion. I'm not a religious guy. Uh, I went to AA and I kind of looked around and went, what the hell am I doing here? Uh, you know, my, my struggle wasn't alcohol and, and I'm not religious. And so it was a very awkward fit. Um, and, and if I had been forced to embrace this idea that I had a problem and that it was my fault, uh, I am not saying I am I am blameless, obviously, but at the same time, you've heard my story now, a therapist almost killed me. How is this my fault? I was a child, you know? And mm -hmm. so to be forced to make that uh, announcement, but to be to, to be forced to embrace this label that I am the problem would have sent me running if I had stayed in AA. So uh, I agree with you. I think it's much more welcoming, and you're seeing a lot of places uh, start to change some of the ways they think about recovery. Yeah, for sure, man. So you, you know, after everything you've gone through, uh, you know, when you were young, you were prescribed all these pills and you went into recovery and all of that what is your personal opinion on like antidepressant use as it stands today yeah so i want to make it very clear i'm not anti-drug i think it's these things can be very helpful um i think they're wildly over prescribed i i know a lot of friends and this is first-hand experience even my own experience in this in this way where uh, it's been a substitute instead of a companion. And what I mean by that is, you know, you go to a therapist, you're feeling down, maybe you're depressed, or maybe you're, you're diagnosed with depression. And instead of saying, let's work through this, and then maybe five, six sessions down the road, we'll give you some pills. It's great. Here are some pills. Come back in a couple of weeks if things aren't working. Or here are some pills. I'll see you in a month, and maybe we can talk about some stuff then. That's a problem. Uh, that's a problem for many reasons. Obviously, doing the work should always be number one. But also, a lot of these things, the side effect is right there in the bottle is it's sort of before you get accustomed to it can increase your symptoms. And there's so many horror stories I have uh, of people around me of friends of friends who unfortunately have taken their own life because they were put on pills, it inflamed their suicidal ideation, and they weren't working with a the therapist because the therapist was like, great, I'll see you in a month. Uh, that's a problem. Um, you know, it, perfect. I, I love to tell this story. I went on a ride along just before COVID with a um, first responder who is a the, the mental health first responder. And we went to three suicide calls that day, all three, same one one common denominator, they'd all recently been put on 
uh, high doses of antidepressants or, or, or antipsychotics or benzodiazepines, something of that sort. Um, and we're not working with a therapist. And so all three were having these increase of symptoms and didn't know what to do. And that to me is malpractice. I, I don't know what other way to put it other than to say that is malpractice. So uh, I think these things can be very helpful. I am in, uh, given a lot of hope by the fact that we're talking about this much more than we were a decade ago, but even more so, we're willing to try other things. You know, you saw two places, DC and Oregon, uh, that legalized psilocybin for therape therapeutic uses. Big supporter. I I'm an open microdoser. Uh, my mood has been incredibly better since I started microdosing. Uh, the studies are showing that this is not rare. Um, you know, they're showing these incredible effects from microdosing, from from even having uh, real uh, sort of uh, what we would call you know psychedelic experiences in a therapeutic office can help change the way that you think about some of the things in your life. And we're seeing this with ketamine. Uh, we're seeing this now with with Molly. I mean, we're we're willing to open our minds. Minds, uh, so you know, pun intended, to to other alternatives, and and, and I just love that. I'm so excited to, uh, about that. I'm actually talking to someone tomorrow about trying to set up a time for me to try psych psychedelic therapy. Uh, very excited about that. So uh, these are the things that are giving me hope. Yeah, I am very excited about the future of psilocybin. Um, before I like, because I kind of want to talk about that, but before I get into that, um, you know, that that whole thing that you were saying, where like you know, you get put on this new prescription and then the therapist says, good luck, see you in a, see you in a month. Um, like I can relate to that heavily because I got prescribed when, it, when I got prescribed that first psychosis medication, uh, I was off at a, at a camping retreat for the swim team for the university when I first started taking it. So, you know, that first week of antidepressant use, your hormones and your thoughts are all over the place. All over the place. You are whacked yeah. out. And so I just remember, like, because I, I couldn't go talk to the therapist. We had no phones. We were out in the wilderness. I did not want to be there. And right. so it was just, it was the worst experience. And I, there was one night where um, I had taken the pills, but I also couldn't sleep because I was so stressed out. So I took... I, I, I want to say it was like 40 milligrams of melatonin or something mm -hmm. like that. It was just an unnecessary amount because I was like, I can't sleep. And then uh, I blacked out and apparently I had just driven my car off to God knows where. And I came to like a, a couple hours later because my swim coach had like driven behind me and like pulled over with me. And she's like, what are you doing? And I just came to, I was like, I have no idea. So it's terrifying. Like, the whole idea of saying, all right, see you in a month. Let's see how it goes. People don't have a month. Like what yeah. if I had, you know, driven off the hill? Like the, it yeah. just happens too often. Yep. And, and especially because, so to sort of co-sign your story, these medications, I mean, they're literally impacting your brain. And a lot of times they can have these sorts of side effects. And again, to use the term malpractice, if you know that you're prescribing it and you're saying, I'll see you in a month, fingers crossed. I don't know what else to call that. I, I would call that malpractice. I, if, you know, if, if, if a doctor was like, great, we're going to give you stitches, you may need surgery. Eh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Good luck. We would call that malpractice. And yet that's what's being, being done every single day in the therapeutic community. Yeah, for sure. It, it's one of those things like you hear it all the time where it's like, you should treat your mental just the same as your physical. And yet there's still a bunch of hypocrisy going on. Yep. 
Yeah. So, so um, I don't know if you've read the book Lost Connections by Joanne Hari. Johan Hari, you love him. Yeah, big fan. Yeah, yeah that yeah. book made me really open my eyes to because you know I was on antidepressants, of course, but then I I got off them, and it really just opened my eyes to all the different alternative ways we can not use antidepressants, but all the alternative quote unquote antidepressants that are out there without being dependent on these pills and the things offered by the medical um, industry. So for you personally, like what, what, what worked for you? Like your bet, like what were your best self-care tips or best self-care tricks, whatever, what was working for you the best while you were recovering? Yeah. So uh, again, huge Johan Hari fan. His book, uh, chasing the scream is is I'm looking at it right now. It's one of my I, I literally tell everybody to read this book. And and he says something a lot whenever he's interviewed in, in all of his books, that the opposite of addiction is is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. And and that to me is such an important point. Uh, for me, at least, rebuilding my life was uh, the, 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 the best way to keep me moving in a healthy direction, because I was excited again about sort of being alive. Um, you know, I went back to school, I got into my first adult relationship, like all these things within a couple of years after I entered recovery. And, and, and so then it, it becomes one of those things where you just start putting one foot in front of another. Well, I'm, I've got today. And, and next thing I know, I look back and I've got you know, a couple hundred days, right? And so um, now as an adult, I am super focused on my mental health. It is is first and foremost. Um, and, and that's something that I, I wanna give a huge shout out to, to my wife uh, because she is also uh, along on this journey with me. It, literally before our second date, before our first date, maybe, I sent her um, a, a video of me the first time I ever spoke on stage and was like, watch this, tell me what you think. If you're not on board, I, I get it, I get it. It. I understand. I get it. But you have to know about this. And she was like, I'm down. Uh, she was like, I, I, I love that you did this. I want to know more about your story. So we've been on this journey together. Um, and, and that's both of us kind of launching ourselves into, well, let's try this. And, you know, she wasn't a big drug person and she's microdosing with me now. You know, it's let's let's take this time to, to really, uh, really be focused on building this life that we want and not be stuck in the life that's expected of us. You know, uh, I loved it. I, I say this a lot. I love to call our generation and I, I'm assuming you're the same generation as me, but uh, millennials, mm. I, I love to call our generation the Y generation not as in like generation y but in the why because we're always the one going but why does this have to be the case you know why is it that x and and a lot of times I, i'm going to steal a, a quote from my dad here the six most expensive words in business or that's the way we've always done things and it's just that's sort of what our society is built on we do this because our parents did it because our gen you know their parents did it and then you go but but why it's 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 harmful right it's it's terrible and and so we as a generation are the ones turning around and going stop we're gonna try something new and and, and we are living that every single day and to be clear that takes intention it takes focusing on on doing things the way that makes sense the way that's going to be healthy and not the way that's expected and so i have multiple mindfulness practices that i do every single day to make sure i'm in the best place to be that guy and this is something that unfortunately i spent years researching because we as a society uh we have equated mindfulness 
with meditation and meditation is a brilliant practice for people who can do it but as many as 80 percent of people cannot meditate or they fall into the camp which is what i am into that you can but you don't get a big benefit out of it the way that some people really do and so i spent literally two years doing my own research, meeting with therapists, meeting with thought leaders, meeting with mindfulness gurus and saying, give me your tips for how to, to do this better. And I, I got so many great ideas that I put up a course on a, on a platform called Listenable, uh, called Mindfulness Beyond Meditation. I now teach this to groups. I, I meet with them. I'll meet with people one-on-one -on -one and say, let's talk about how you can add mindfulness to your lives in a way that might not include meditation. And, and uh, some of these work for me, other ones don't. But the problem, I think, with a, with a lot of people who lead this sort of thing is they go, let me tell you what works for me, which might be great. I, I mean, I think a couple of the things I do every day are incredible, but I also recognize the same thing with meditation. If I force you to do this one that's working for me, you may go, well, this doesn't work. Why, why should I do this? So instead, I have a list of about 20 different things that I, I can bring into a conversation, and I'm going to say, let's figure out which of these is going to work for you. And if it doesn't work, great, move on. Let's find Find a new one. The whole point here is adding mindfulness to your day, not adding my practices to your day. Yeah. And that's, that's important too, because if you want to take that topic and bring it back to the therapy world, the medical world, sometimes antidepressants work for people, but when they don't work for you, you you're led to believe that they work for everyone. So when they right. don't, you're like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Yeah. So actually it's so cool. You said that. So again, quoting David poses, big fan. He educated me on this just the other day. Do you know what percentage of people are antidepressant resistant? No, I don't. 49%. Wow. That is way And yet, to I your thought. point, we're led to believe that this is like, oh, you're the problem. You're the one person. No, you are the literally almost the majority of people <laughs> that this doesn't work for. Man, I I don't know what I, I was thinking, like 20 at most. I was like, ah, that might be a high guess. 49? I thought so too. And David Poses was like, no, because his whole point was he was he wanted antidepressants. It didn't work for him. What did? Heroin. And yet, you know, we have this huge problem, and it's not heroin's fault. Heroin is very similar to a lot of the drugs that are illegal. It's the sister drug. It's the same way that we have this giant problem with meth. And, you know, if I told you that every college campus was overrun with meth, there would be con congressional investigations. There would be all sorts of stuff. And yet, meth's sister drug is everywhere. Do you know what drug I'm talking about? Oh, man. I wish I, I don't know. Adderall. Adderall, Adderall yes. and meth are literally the same drug with one molecule different. That's it. And it's not mm -hmm. that it makes it safer. It's that this one is sold by pharmacists. And because of that, you know, you're getting straight Adderall. Whereas this one is sold by Jeff on the street corner. Mm -hmm. You may be getting meth. You may also be getting a bunch of fentanyl. You have no idea. So that's the only thing that's different. And yet one of these is wildly accepted and misused on every college campus in the entire world. The other one, if you get caught with it, you're doing real jail time. Doesn't make any sense. No, not at all. And I've, I've known people who take like 
copious amounts of Adderall before exams and stuff. And then the next day they like can't speak. And I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this, man. Like this is legal. And they're like, yup. I'm like, mm, ah, it doesn't look legal. <laughs> well, so the thing is that it exists in a gray area because the drug itself is wildly legal and it's wildly profitable for the people who own it at the same time. We all know, I mean, this was going on when I was in school a decade ago and, and almost two decades ago when I first started college, you know, one person in a circle had the prescription and everybody used it. If, if you, again, you replace the word Adderall with meth, that person's a drug dealer. And yet when it's someone who has an Adderall prescription, oh, they're just helping their friends get through a test. So again, it's not about the drug itself. It's about how we think about the drugs. Yeah, yeah, the conversation around it. On, on that note, you know, you, you've talked about psilocybin use. What got you into that? Because again, there's a big dark cloud around using mushrooms <laughs> and the idea of getting shroomed up. Every, every, there's like this weird kind of like I've, I've done shrooms before, but when I say it, people kind of shift uncomfortably. <laughs> so what got you into microdosing? Well, I'm really, I'm lucky, unlike you, my friend, that I'm in a circle where most people are very, I think it's very cool and are very supportive. Um, I started using shrooms for the first time when I was in college, again, uh, 15, 16 years ago. Um, when I was at my worst in 2008 and 2009, I was doing shrooms multiple times a week because I was in such a bad place that just getting out of my reality for, you know, five, six, seven hours was my goal. And so, you know, people were like, you're abusing shrooms. I'm like, nah, I'm using them for what I'm sp they're supposed to be for. I'm getting out of my life for a little while. Now, as an adult, that's not the case. I don't trip anymore. That's not really my thing. For people who do, go for it. I I, I, I miss it. Um, if I was in the right environment, I think I would still do it. Uh, for those listening by the right environment, I mean set and setting. And when, what we mean by that is the right mindset set and the right setting, being in the right place, right? If I went and took a trip out into the desert for Burning Man, sure, I would do shrooms. But you know, here in my, my, my little uh, neighborhood of Philadelphia, not the best place. So what I use it for now is uh, microdosing. And I got into that uh, early this year. I um, was doing all this reading about, you know, how it is, studies are showing how incredible this can be, even at small numbers. Uh, just to cite one study real quick, there was a, a, this just came out, I think probably in June, maybe, uh, that found they, they had two groups, one that was on antidepressants and the other one that got one high dose of mushrooms. And eight weeks later, the, the lowest rating of the people who took one shroom trip was the highest of antidepressants. And so just one trip can change your, your mindset. And this is why we're seeing this get legalized for, for therapeutic reasons in a lot of places. Um, but me personally, I bought a kit off the internet that I that I, I grew mushrooms with here in my in my house. I'm I know it's illegal. I'm saying it anyways. Uh, and and, and um, I, I grew this with my wife's health. We kind of treated it as like a little hobby for a little while, and it produced <laughs> so many mushrooms. Uh, I, I had to give some away. I, I had friends who were like, "Can we have some?" I'm like, yeah, "I'm not going to sell it to you, but I will happily give it to you." So uh, we saved enough to, to microdose. And uh, I, I, the, the, the regimen I follow is the one that is sort of recommended for microdosing, which is one day on, two days off. When I first started, I was doing it one day on, five days off because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't uh, ramping up too quickly. And I, one of my mindfulness practices is I rate my day every day. At the end of the day, on a scale of one to five, uh, I do, I do a, a 30 seconds to a minute of just daily review, and then I give my, my day a, a rating. 
And I do this because as a guy who struggles with depression, when we get into those holes, depression will tell us it's always been this way. You should just give up all that kind of BS. But if I can look back at my ratings, I can go, oh no, it's only been like this for two days. I'm going to be fine. So I've been using this now, obviously, to, to, to look back at since I started microdosing. And my average day has literally moved up an entire point. Uh, I used to be probably about a three or so, um, you know, right in the middle, not, not bad, not good. I'm now averaging over a four since I started microdosing. It's just that incredible. Um, and, and, and the reason is you know, microdosing can help you in a lot of different ways. For me personally, I've never gotten the creative boost that some people get from microdosing. You know, we hear those stories of the guys in the boardrooms on Wall Street who are microdosing so they can think of new crazy ways to, you know, whatever. For me, it acts as a shield. And so sort of regular old negative things, uh, which may before, you know, really burrow in and just ruin a day now will bounce off, you know, yeah, this, this was annoying. In that moment, I was really annoyed. And then I move on. Whereas before it was like, that was really annoying. And eight hours later, I'm still annoyed. And, and that just doesn't happen anymore. I don't know why that's not my thing. I'm sure someone listening could probably tell you why. Uh, but for me personally, I just know it works. Man, yeah, no, it. I, I'm very. I've me, I already mentioned it in this episode. I'm very excited to see where it goes because it's getting widely, wild, widely. I can't speak. It's getting widely <laughs> accepted, um, and like used as an alternative, a more healthy alternative, I guess, more natural almost than like the antidepressants that we're seeing be heavily prescribed. Yeah, and I think also it's really helpful to to sort of lay out for people who for whom this might be completely foreign you know, this isn't the crazy stereotypes you've seen on TV. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, for to, to make it very clear, to, to get psychosomatic or, or, or visual effects from using psilocybin, uh, the average person has to use between 1.5 and 3 grams. Um, if you're on the low side, like me, you start getting that at about 1.5. I have a baby tolerance. I don't know why, it just is the case. Other people can take upwards of 3 and then they'll start having these that's to trip that's to have the whoa out of your mind experience what i'm talking about is between 0.1 and 0.3 grams for me it's 0.1 um you know my wife takes roughly the same and for other people a microdose for them is 0.3 but again that's such a small amount that if you do it right you don't feel anything and nothing you don't even know that you're on it if you do a little bit too much you go oh interesting i feel a little funny for a moment that's it. So we're not talking about out in the street naked, you know, I am the lizard king or anything that ridiculous like that. You wouldn't even know you were on it if somebody gave you this amount, or maybe you just kind of feel happy. And, uh, you know, these things are not addictive, um, but they, they won't leave a hole in your in your mind the way we used to be told, you know, drug war uh, rhetoric. There is very little downside to taking small amounts of, of psilocybin, other than the fact that it's illegal. And if you get caught with it, you could be in a lot of trouble. That's that's pretty much the only downside. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, myself I, I and my friends like there's hesitancy to do microdosing simply because you know that idea of you're gonna trip out no matter how much you take is like is there like right. you know I, I don't want to sit here and be shroomed up every morning it's <laughs> like well that's not it's not what that is <laughs> that's not what that is it ain't gonna happen uh you know a simple kitchen scale is what i use 20 bucks on amazon um you know and just make sure that you start low and go slow and figure out you know what your top 
uh, where you start to feel it, literally anything. Uh, and, and when I say feel it, I just mean you feel a little funny. It's not you're seeing stuff. Uh, and then go down a little bit. And there you go. That's your microdose. Amazing, man. So let's say someone's listening who's trying to um, not get help, but trying to get better in terms of like with dealing with depression, anxiety, what what have you, or just overall outlook on life, but they don't want to use psilocybin or microdosing or anything like that. Uh, how do they start? Like, how do they initially push their ego to the side and become vulnerable and empathetic with themselves? So I would say this is sort of a two-step uh, answer to that question. Number one is to do the work yourself. And there's a couple of tools that I recommend. One of my mindfulness practices is specifically for this. And I do it, uh, I used to do it every day and now I do it every couple of days. Um, but it's a great way of uncovering what's really going on in, in your mind. You know, we have millions of little ideas and thoughts that pop into our mind every single day, 99.9% .9 of which we don't even recognize. You know, they, they might even get into our subconscious, uh, they might just pass through our head. The problem is if you're not doing the work, you know, I, I kind of described that the, the mind is a garden and what's going on below the, the, the surface of the dirt is your subconscious. If you're not doing the, the, the work to get your hands dirty, you have no idea what's going on down there. And there might be a lot of weeds. So the, the technique that I use and that I recommend is called a daily check-in. You sit down with a pen and paper or a notebook or, or you know, the, the notepad on your phone, which is what I use, and you write the words, I feel. And then you complete the sentence and you keep doing this until you can no longer do so uh, early on. That's going to be, I feel angry. I feel annoyed, whatever the case is. But then once you start doing this more often, you get down there a lot quicker and what comes up may start to surprise you. I feel annoyed that this person said this three weeks ago and it's like, oh my God, I didn't realize I was still carrying that around. Some of that stuff you can figure out yourself. Well, if you feel annoyed they said that, go tell them, uh, figure out why that hurt you so much, right? These are things you can do, but other things that come up may scare you a little bit, and that's where you take it to a professional. So if you have access to a mental health counselor, if you're at a school, um, you know, they they provide it for you. If not, maybe you're in the real world and, and it's really hard, but you know, you do have uh, resources to find a therapist, go to psychology today, type in your insurance and, and they'll try to find one for you. Uh, the other recommendation I have is a, is a, a really great service called Peer Collective. It's specifically for people who are not working with a therapist. They want someone to listen. They want someone to bounce ideas off of, but they don't have access to a therapist or maybe they're seeing a therapist and it's not going very well. Uh, what these people are is they're, they're people who have been tested and they are very high in empathy. They're then trained on how to be a peer counselor. And what's amazing about this service is that it's like 20 bucks for half an hour, like 30 bucks for an hour. So it's much more affordable. Uh, go to peercollective.com. The, the, the founder is a guy I interviewed on my show and I tried it out. I was so blown away by this idea. And you take them these things and say, hey, you know, this is what came up for me. What do you think about that? Um, now, some of them may say, hey, you know what? We all have thoughts. They don't really mean much. And that's true. We kind of give our thoughts uh, way more weight than they need to be. As a guy with OCD, that's a lesson I had to learn the hard way. They may also say, man, that's a heavy experience. I'm so sorry you had to go through that trauma. You know, maybe you should try this type of therapy or, or, or that type of therapy or working with this therapist. So, you know, that's a great place to start. It's sort of a toe in the door. Uh, it's not a going straight to a therapist. It's going to more of a friend who wants to listen and be there and, and they can give you some ideas. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, thoughts, like you said, they hold so much weight when we internalize them. But at the same time, some thoughts that may be a bigger, 
they may be a bigger deal when you say them than you were thinking. You're like, oh, it's not a big deal. And the, the people go, well, actually, that that's pretty messed up. And then there's other thoughts where you're like, this is a big deal. And they're like, ah, no, it's, it's weird how the brain works like that. Yeah, it definitely goes both ways. You know, it, 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 we can't control our thoughts. We just can't. It, 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 that's not how this works. I could be sitting here talking to you right now and popping into my head is going, I wonder what's for dinner. I didn't want to be thinking about that. I want to be focused on you. My brain decided to think about what's for dinner. You're right. If you say that out loud to someone, sometimes those things can be elevated. I'm, oh my God, I can't believe you're thinking about what's for dinner. Nobody thinks, whatever. But also, you know, with talking to the right person, they'll go, you know, our thoughts don't really, our thoughts don't command our actions, making decisions based on our thoughts commands our actions. And so me personally, again, as a guy with OCD, I had to learn the hard way that, you know, these compulsions I do based on these obsessions, the way you stop that is not by focusing on the compulsions as they do in every TV show. Oh, he's washing his hands all the time. Yeah, forget that. What's important is the obsessions that are motivating those 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 uh, compulsions. And so if you can think about, okay, why am I obsessed with these thoughts? What is going on with these thoughts? You can start to realize I'm not controlling that. I know that that holds no weight. I can be better at ignoring some of these obsessions. So uh, again, that's sort of an extreme example, but we all need to work on that at times to recognize which of our thoughts actually matter and which are ju- which are just, you know, that that little bit of hot air passing us through throughout the day. Yeah, for sure, and that takes so much freaking self-work. Like <laughs> like I it's so much easier said than done. Like I I still experience it where like I'll get a passing thought and it ruins my day and then I look back the next day I'm like why did that bother me so much? 100%. It's yep. it's yeah. So to kind of cap off this episode, I wanted to give the listeners a little like little nugget um because on your website you actually have uh an old story posted and it's one that I've heard before. And I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show, but I really want listeners to hear it. It's about the, the guy stuck in the hole and he's asking (laughs) doctors. So, um, what is that story and like, how does it illustrate your passion in life? So I will say, yes, I love this story. I've heard it multiple times too. Uh, my favorite iteration of this story is on the show, the West wing, um, and, and for anyone who watches the show and may know what I'm talking about, it's the story that Leo says to Josh, um, basically the, the, the short version of this is a guy falls in a hole and, uh, a doctor walks past and says, Hey doc, I'm, I'm stuck in a hole. Can you help me out? And the doctor throws down a, a, a prescription and says, take two and call me in the morning. Uh, then a, 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 you know, a religious leader walks past and he goes, Hey, I'm stuck in this hole. And he goes, Hey, read, read chapter, you know, whatever, and call me in the morning. We'll talk about it. Uh, and then a friend walks past and he says, hey, buddy, I'm, I'm stuck in a hole. And the friend jumps down with him and he says, uh, hey, man, what did you do that for? Now we're both stuck down here. And the friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Uh, that's sort of the reason why I and a lot of people do this work is that, you know, I quite honestly, there's nothing special about me. I've done the research. I, I, I've got, you know, lived and learned experience. And, and the most important part of that is the lived experience because as incredible as all of these thought leaders are who, who have 30 years of research into this, you know, they don't know what it's like to be waking up at 7 a.m. going through withdrawal. You know, they don't know what it's like to spend multiple days not able to get off the couch. I've been there. And, and so uh, I always say this whenever I am interviewed, 
that what that means is if you need somebody to talk to, I will be there. I, I, I have a code word uh, that I give people because sometimes just saying, hey, I need help is more than we can do. And so what I always tell them is if you are hearing this and you truly think you have no one in your life you can talk to, reach out to me either through my website, jshiffman.com, uh, social media. I actually had someone who reached out to me over TikTok once. Wouldn't mm -hmm. recommend it. I always forget that I have a TikTok. Uh, I don't check those messages. But but you know if that's the only way you feel comfortable, fine, reach out to me on TikTok. But tell me, hey, I heard you with 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 Harry, and I've got some questions. All you have to say, you know, or I had a question. Would you got a second? All you have to say, I know the code. I'll say, great. When do you want to set up a time to talk? You want to talk right now? I will be there. And and the reason guys like me do that is that we have a saying, and that's that we'd rather spend two hours listening to you today than two hours at your funeral tomorrow. So please reach out. I will be there, and uh, we can we can chat about whatever you need. I love it, brother. I'll put all your social media and your website in the description down below. So if you're listening and you want to reach out to Jay, it's all down there. Jay, thank you so much for coming on, man. This has been an absolute pleasure. Harry, I appreciate it, man. Thank you for doing what you're doing. We need to keep getting these messages out there. And honestly, it just starts with talking about it. So keep up the great work. Absolutely, man. And to all my listeners, I will see you guys next time.